0: Welcome to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Estelle, sitting here with my co-host, Arthur Black. Hello, Durga Durga, Kabla, Derka Durga. And our guest today is Shay Marano, uh, Master of Wine, is coming to by the show, and uh, we're getting ready to do a little uh, seminar here with her. But uh, she was gracious enough to sit down with us and drink some wine at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning with us.
1: Can I just say, I sort of feel like this is the that episode of Saturday Night Live with Alec Baldwin and the sweaty <laughs> <shreddy> balls. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a great episode. <laughs> it is such a great episode. Um, not only for his role in it, but the, the take on the, you know, FYI, uh, the public radio <laughs> yeah. Yeah. tone. Oh, completely. Stale. Um Sort of thing, um, the exact opposite of us. But um, can't we
0: all agree that like Baldwin is killing it now more than ever with yes. his Trump? Oh my gosh. Uh, it, is, it is genius. Nailed it. And Kate McKinnon is killing Anne Conway's. I just- apologize. Oh and everything. She's she's
1: just so she's from Long Island and actually my mom's best friend was one of her teachers. In she high is school. one of the funniest teachers. She is ever. amazing. I yeah. I she's somebody I would like to sit down and have a glass of wine with. Okay. Although I have a Apple feeling it would, like, come out of my nose mostly.
0: The, uh, the invitation's out there. Yes, Kate, there you go. So <laughs> if you want to sit and... I'll uh, by the wine. Yeah, oh, uh, we'll definitely take her up on that one then. So uh, you are, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of accolades behind you, and I don't want to belabor the point. I'm sure you're tired of uh, mentioning them in every interview that Oh, no, do. it's okay.
1: Just <laughs> hit, hit me with uh, it. No.
0: Youngest <laughs> female master of wine in the United States.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and, and that was, that was uh, sort of a goal when, when I was younger and, um, and was trying to achieve the MW. I mean, that was sort of, that was something uh, in my head. Although I have to say these days, it's kind of like, you know, age is fleeting. There's going to sure. be somebody behind me at some point who's going to do it. So, so I there still hasn't been. No, not yet. Not yet. You still but hold the title. I, still, I guess, yes. Um, but I think as as you get older, you're sort of like, ah, does you know, does it really? How much does it matter? Really
0: cool when you you're know? 28. Yeah. Less cool, cool when you're, twi- when you're Yeah, 20,
1: yeah. <laughs> when you're when you're approaching 42, you're <laughs> like, ah, eh, we don't have to talk about that. You're
0: <laughs> occupied
2: with other things. <laughs> yes, I exactly, suppose. exactly. Uh, this is a really special podcast, though. I mean, not only do we have a, a, a great guest with us, uh, one of very few people in the world to to accommodate that feat of the MW. But um, this is a morning that we're actually recording this, which is a rarity. And uh, yeah, neither like the Ed theory, or I are hungover. I think. I think both of us are. <laughs> no, not at all. Doing somewhat, great. somewhat lucid. Had to uh, have some
0: coffee this morning. I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I definitely needed to hit it this morning.
2: And you know, we're actually we're we're sober for the moment. I mean, we got some wines to get through yeah. and some other things, but yeah, I mean, this is. Um, We need to buy lottery tickets. This is a special podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a very special episode. Yeah, uh, please write in if it was incredibly boring, and we'll drink more <laughs> in the following episode. <laughs> like,
2: right now, people are just like, "Click, right. come Oh, these guys
0: are gonna be sober. I don't you know, know. turn it off. Where's all the expletives? Usually, Aww. we're laughing at them, not with them.
2: Um, but it, it's it's really hard to kind of decide where to start with talking um, about this topic because we don't do as much wine stuff as we do other other spirit things, and, and or at least we haven't thus far. And um, you know, I think the only thing we've done wine so far is when I talked about bubbles. So, like our first guest wine speaker, we're just kind of knocking
0: this out of the fucking park. Yeah. Um, to you know. It's all
1: downhill from here. Just saying. So well,
0: know. we have a lot of listeners out there that aren't <laughs> in the industry as well. So, like, you want to tell people a little bit about what a master of wine sure. is and and what you do?
1: Sure. Um, yes, I like to refer to it as I am a master of wine, uh, sort of jack of all trades, master of one kind of thing. Um, So a Master of Wine, uh, that title is, kind of started out as an old British trade designation back in sort of 1940s, 1950s. Um, The exact, I think, first exam was something like 1953. And it started out as a way of uh, sort of helping people within the trade obtain certification and um, a way of, making sure that people had um, educated palates, and there was a, a good amount of focus on both quality and also authenticity. Um, and the idea of being able to authenticate uh, you know, a, a lot of the early questions came um, on the MW exam were focused on. You know, you've got a palette of wine from X. You know, how do you make sure that it is what it says it is? How do you authenticate the wine? So that idea of, of sort of almost traceability um, and that something. You know, if it says it's neuf to pop, or if it says it's Chianti or Rioja, that it is what it says it is. And so um, early. Um, Early MWs were, you know, involved in the in the wine trade and uh, a lot of people sort of selling um, wine and and um, selling wine to supermarkets, consumers, that that kind of thing. And then sort of it grew into a lot of wine education. Um, the first sort of non-trade, the first journalists um, that happened in. I want to say that was Jancis Robinson, actually. And then we expanded into, um, you know, the first non-British MWs. uh, That was in the early 90s. And today it's become, um, you can kind of think of their two sort of – uh, top certifications within the wine trade, the master of wine and the master sommelier. And, and I get asked a lot sort of what's the difference and, um, you know, are you a wine master? Are you a sommelier? That kind of thing. And, um, the two exams are actually structurally very different. And so that's, um, that's one place to start, but just in terms of what they do, the sommelier, the master sommelier has always been focused on restaurant service. Whereas the MW is again, very much focused on the trade sort of selling wine, wine education. There are a lot of MWs who are wine makers, uh, it, it's sort of a, a wide swath across the across the industry. The exam is, you know, noted for being incredibly intense because it's a four to five day exam of tasting and then essay writing, and then it culminates in part three, which is a research paper, which is kind of almost like sort of a, a dissertation on a on a particular topic, uh, a question that you investigate. Um, and so it's it is a, a pretty intensive um, process, but it's it's also incredibly um, rewarding. I, I guess you you sort of have to be a little bit of a, a masochist when it comes to exams huh. and things like that. But there's also that um, you know I think when you fall in love with wine, uh, you want to know as much as you can mm-hmm. and and. You know, learn everything you possibly can and and you never, even when you sit the exam, you're, you're supposed to sort of think about it as you're walking in as I am a master of wine, I'm going to demonstrate my mastery and show you all what I know kind of thing um, but you also have to realize that in many ways that's just a stepping stone on your journey because you don't know everything, everything always changes, there's always a new vintage, there's always a new grape. Yesterday I, I learned like a new region in Spain that I had never heard of so I mean there's always something new so it's a constant kind of journey and you have have to be open to that that even if you have the title mw or ms there's um you're still learning well uh, you
2: still gotta earn a living afterwards <laughs> you know not that, that doesn't too. make you marketable um, and it is definitely a genre of study that engenders passion you mm-hmm. know to, to your point yeah. um regrettably i think so many people can get get lost in academia and the studies to where they're way overly academic about a glass of wine, they forget why they actually got into it in the first place, which is right. enjoyment, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of communal gathering of friends and hanging out and just just drinking, right. you know, like.
1: Which is what I fell in love with back in the very, very beginning. <laughs> <mechanic>, which, I mean, that's. I was like, going to no, totally no, ask no. you that. Like, I mean, yeah. I,
0: every time I talk to any, whether it be SOM, Advanced, mm-hmm. Master of Wine, um, whatever, um, I, there's always like a bottle. Right, that was that aha moment, or maybe mm-hmm. it was an experience. Usually, it's a bottle, but sometimes it's just an experience of being in the right place at the right time, and the atmosphere is like, okay, I, I totally get it now.
1: So I was 16. <laughs> and... Wow, well, I was drinking Bad Dog 2020 <laughs> when I was 16. Um, mine was cheap Italian table wine. Uh, I was on a high school trip to Italy, and our with our Latin teacher uh, in high school because, yes, I was that much of a geek. And um, uh, she said to our parents, the kids are gonna be legal in Italy, and if they, if you don't mind, they can have wine with dinner. And my parents were like, please, go relax, have a glass of wine. Um, uptight, over right, yeah. high schooler, out. yeah. Uh, really had never been to a cake party in my life. Um, so they said, yes, please go to Italy, have a glass of wine with your dinner, and I did. And I still, to this day, can, um, conjure up the picture in my head of this big room and the whole group sitting around the dinner table and the you know just the crafts of wine so I mean just not anything we're not talking like oh well my first wine was Mouton and it was Lafitte and that's what I fell in love with Um, this was just table wine but it it just it changed the dynamic of the meal and and it brought that just that sense of camaraderie there there was just something about it and it, it just really it it caught my attention. And I remember kind of coming back um, and my parents were not really big wine drinkers. They had wine on special occasions. Um, but the joke in my family is that I was actually, I was weaned on grape juice um, when I was two. My mom would say, you know, do you want a nurse or do you want grape juice? And I'd be like, grape juice! <laughs> <laughs> and that is it. That is a true solder family story, um, as embarrassing as it is. And um, so, I, you know, I guess maybe I'd always sort of had um, I was always the one in the family, you know, oh, is the milk spoiled or it was always more sensitive to sort of food and things like that. But it really that experience when I was 16 was was a real eye opener to just sort of also how we think about alcohol and wine and how we raise children in this country to think about that. And so I did a lot of traveling Kind of after that, and in college, and started learning more about food and wine pairing, and and just um, after I graduated from college. Um I had thought I was gonna go on to grad school and study Tudor history, study English history, medieval renaissance studies for like the rest of my life. And um, decided after I graduated from college that, uh, that I needed a break from that. And so I started working in marketing research in New York and thought, well I still would like to do something educational, take some classes, do something. And I signed up for a one night class with Mary Ewing Mulligan and her husband Ed when they would released uh, one of the Wine for Dummies book. Great book. And, yep. Yeah, fantastic book. Still and, use it all the
0: time at the restaurants.
1: Mm-hmm and and she happened to mention that she ran this wine school and they taught these Wine and Spirit Education Trust classes, WSCT classes, and I thought, well, that sounds like a really interesting thing to do, and that was that was that was just it, and it just kept going and going and going.
2: So. All right, so I, a couple of things um, you'd mentioned a little while ago, Chances Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, for listeners that are out there that want a really great reference um, source of information, because there's a lot of misinformation in the wine world, absolutely, um, as in every other you know genre of academia and you know news, fake news. Um, <laughs> But, Fake uh, wine news. Fake news. Yeah. Yeah. You all go. rum is sugary. So uh, <laughs> Janssens is uh, is basically a, a, a matriarch of, of the wine community. She wrote the Oxford Companion. She has a wonderful website. Costs about eighty five uh, pounds for um
1: well for twelve
2: to. months. Yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a wonderful site. And in all sites I've seen information and discrepancies and contradictions. And we're talking about so much information with the wine world that it, it's it's hard to to conceive a perfect site but i would strongly endorse checking that out if you want some some really great and it's data oriented you know i mean she has like you know like blogs and posts and guest articles and things like that but it's go there if you're looking for, for data um, almost and, and as importantly and
1: I will, I will also say it gives you online access to the Oxford, so that you don't have to carry the giant book around you, with you in your suitcase. I should have clarified, which is what many of us did back. Uh, then. When
2: I started, first started studying, I I still have flashcards that were taken directly from the mm-hmm. Oxford Companion. And my poor Oxford Companion, which is 15 years old now, is it's just in shambles. It's, yep. it's it doesn't even have a cover. It's just, you know my dogs have eaten it like three times. Um, but before I forget, and almost more importantly. You said by 16, you'd never been to a keg party.
1: No. <laughs> have you
2: been to one since 16? <laughs> yes, I did go to college. Just want to make sure. <laughs> All, right. All right. I just needed to get that out in the open. Um, so we, uh, we do have a couple of wines to, uh, to taste. Yeah. Um, Sherry, outside of her work with the MW program and helping um, educate future MWs, um, does uh, represent the um, Rutherford Wine Company, yeah, I do I do
1: some educational work for the Rutherford wine company and uh, we do some work with um, specifically the the Scott family estate um, which has wines made from Appalachians in Oreo Seco uh, carneros and Russian River Valley and they are a um, they're a pleasure to work with they're Uh, First of all, really nice people, um, delicious wines, and it's also given me a lot of my background in wine. I've I've spent a lot of time on sort of the old world side, uh, and this was um, a great um, opportunity to learn, uh, for me, again, to learn a bit more about California and... Um, and an appellation I wasn't as familiar with um, up until a few years ago, the Arroyo Seco Appellation.
2: So just for clarity's sake, because again, we have you know, listeners that are kind of across the board and, and represent a cross-section of, of both consumers and the trade. Um, Old World is, is an open reference to European wine-producing countries, and there's no tricks. Like, people go, well, you mentioned it's Old World wine-producing country. What about South Africa? I'm like, hey, is South Africa in Europe? no new world so new world and old world is kind of where wine speakers start when kind of putting the the global wine um scene into um into categories and help deconstruct and she also mentioned a few different appellations uh or in the case of the u.s american viticultural areas she said rutherford Russian River, Arroyo Seco. So we're talking about places coming from Napa, Sonoma, and Monterey. Mm-hmm. And um, the Scott Family Estate is um, they they're, it it's it's all Arroyo Seco, right? It's all coming from Monterey, or they well, source some fruit from Carneros too.
1: Well, no, they they have both. They have um, they have a Chardonnay from Arroyo Seco, a Chardonnay from Carneros, and then a Pinot from a Pinot Noir from Arroyo Seco and a Pinot Noir from Russian River Valley. So it's kind of those three different appellations that are all um, just uh, sort of really great appellations for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir within California.
0: I like Pinot Noir. <laughs> I am not that familiar with the Royal Seco uh, AVA and that translates to dry creek.
1: Mm-hmm, right? Dry riverbed. Dry mm-hmm. riverbed. Most people aren't. It's, it's an area that has kind of an interesting history to it, it was recognized sort of in the 1960s as a good place to grow grapes. They looked at it and they said, hey, this is, you know, the the whole Monterey area, you know, really great for agriculture. And and so we should be growing some grapes down there. Um, And they started doing some plantings. In fact, at one point in the very early 70s, it was like, Twenty-five thousand acres planted all, you know, kind of at once, um, and a number of big uh, wineries went in there. We've heard of Wenty and even, you know, Paul Masson and uh, and Almaden. They were they were in there and, and making wine. But one one of the issues that they didn't kind of take into consideration back at that point was the fact that this area sees um, a tremendous amount of flo- of flog. Fog, flog. 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 It sees a lot of flog. I um, hate flog. <laughs> sounds like it's not as good as flan. Um, so it it gets, um, a, there's a, a big diurnal temperature swing, um, and you also get sort of this Monterey Mistral, which um, rather than the wind sweeping down the plain in Oklahoma, this is the wind sweeping down, um, down the valley. Uh, and so they sort of, um, they were doing, the vines were at that point, you know, pretty far apart. They were doing a lot of overhead irrigation. And a lot of the wines coming out of Monterey at that point were pretty like lean, green, and mean. Um, And so over time, what they've figured out is, you know, um, tighter spacing, more drip irrigation. They've changed the use of clones. They've, um, They've focused on some grapes that are, you know, more appropriate for uh, cooler climates, um, and then within this area, within both the and then just Sort of Monterey in general, where those pockets are for more, say Bordeaux varietals, or further down, Um, you might have some Zinfandel. But within Arroyo Seco, you have um, you do have a mixture. But what pockets are better for Chardonnay and Pinot? And so, I think this is an area that a lot of people you see um, a a good amount of of people going in and and planting there and focusing on Chardonnay and Pinot um, these days, and and they're producing much better quality wines than you would say find in the back in the 60s or 70s. Um, quality is just Really jumped tremendously, and so I think it's an area that we will see more of, um, and consumers will start to learn more about. Uh, because I also think, as you look at sort of price points, um, it's you know it, it doesn't maybe have sort of some of the cachet that you have in say Carneros and Russian mm-hmm. River Valley, um, but therefore a lot of the prices for Chardonnay and Pinot are, are from these areas are they're more affordable, and so I do think that it's an area that as critics start to talk more about it, and we our, I think our whole understanding of um, of this concept of new world and terroir is, is really shifting. I mean, we used to, there was sort of this idea, when I think back to some of my very early wine books, um, sections that you would spend, you know, the time you would spend on Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and um, France in general, and then sort of the rest of the old world, and then you had this sort of little section on the new world and California and, and maybe a few other places, and, and I think, are there was this idea that old world terroir was an old world concept and i think what we see today is is really challenging that and as you see a shift in styles just all around the world i think it's a really it's a really fascinating time some of the the trends that we're seeing within the industry and sort of new wave trends in California, for instance, you know, earlier harvesting, less oak, more you know, lower alcohol. Uh, a lot of those wines in blind tasting, a lot of people think, oh, those are those are European. Those can't possibly be California. If it's going to be California, it's going to be a really big oaky fruit bomb. And yet, we're also seeing um, riper and um, more sort of fruit-driven um, styles coming out of out of Places in France. And and, I mean, I've tasted some Bordeaux wines where you look at the alcohol on the label and it's like 14 and a half, even 15 (laughs) percent. Which is very rare
0: for Bordeaux. And that was, do you think that's a product of? globalization just having better access we've got internet yeah i mean you know winemakers can very very easily reach out to each other and obtain each other's wines where Mm -hmm. it might have been much more difficult in the 70s when california was really kind of struggling to find its identity
1: sure i I think it's it's all of those things and it's not necessarily a, a bad thing i think where where it it becomes sort of that that balance um is in understanding the role that sort of big producers and smaller boutique producers can play, making sure that there are avenues to market for all of the different players um, and sort of availability um, of, of those wines. And, and and so choice comes into play. Um, but I also think that you know that exchange of information and and a and understanding of what an area can produce and what it can do well um, is is really important and and to have that dialogue is is valuable. So I, I think you know there's. I think things can change, should change. I think global warm or climate change comes into play. It's a Chinese um, conspiracy. It's, it's a hoax, but, I mean, we see it in grapevines. Um, you know, you look at English sparkling wine. Uh, and, and so I think all of those things, I mean, that that's why you start to just Get really excited about wine. What's going on, and what people are doing, and and you have these you know new generations of people who come in and and start making wine and playing with wine, and and it it should be fun. I mean, wine is that really to me, it is the most interdisciplinary subject out there. It is everything, and I think it has as long as we don't try and and push it into that box that it has to be X or it has to be Y. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times I, I find myself saying to this too. Um, saying this to MW students, you know, this is not a fine wine exam. This is a wine exam, and so you have to understand everything from you know A to Z, from whether that's white Zinfandel to you know, I don't know what starts with More an A. Uh, um. Yeah, <laughs> Amarone. I mean, you, you know, it's it is everything, and it and it's at all different price points and and market segments. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in in you know, wine is this or that. And, I mean, we talked about it last night, sort of that idea of the black and white, and you start to learn that it is so much gray. There, There is such, I think, beauty in that. that the more you know, be, the more
2: you th- realize you don't know. That's
0: well, that's 100% true. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but, you know, I was thinking, you know, if you're still listening and you don't know that much about wine, hopefully we haven't scared <laughs> like, you off at this point. Sorry, but that would but be No, no, my no, fault. you're good because, I mean, this is like – how serious this is. And I think a lot of people, we discussed this last night as well. I think a lot of people don't realize that this is an avenue of study and it's a career. Mm -hmm. Like, if if somebody would have told me in my 20s. Yeah, my friends think I drink for a living, but you know. You know, the glamorous job Tasting for a living, sitting in a conference room getting ready to give a seminar. Right. But I mean, you know, wine is an intimidating world and I always liken it to the Rome world because you have four dozen countries making Rome that are in wildly different ways and yes, Mm -hmm. they each have their own sets of laws and traditions, but they have nothing to do with each other. And I think that's the intimidating part when people get start getting into wine Absolutely. and so like you know you've you've got across the spectrum like you're educating master students but you're also coming out and you know doing things like your seminar today where we're talking about the Arroyo seco mm-hmm. uh, Appalachian I mean how people that literally are walking in and are horrified to go into a wine store and there's a lot because especially now in 2017 you can even go into a, a like a Whole Foods and there's some decent wine on the shelf. Oh, sure, and I a lot you've of wine. you got to, hold it. and you've got to, you know, <laughs> but you've got to be able to figure out what the hell it is. Yeah,
1: and 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 you know, so it's, how do you
0: do that uh, without scaring people off?
1: Well, you know, it's hard, and and I, I guess the thing I always sort of remember is is how, um, <laughs> is how scared I remember being kind of at the beginning too. I mean, I remember I was in. College. There was one restaurant on campus where you could um, you could go and have like a nice dinner. It was sort of a sit down. It's called the Oak Room, and you could get wine on points. That you could order a bottle of wine as long as you were 21, and you could get wine on points. That was sort of our you know our system of um, uh, for for food money, and I remember I had been doing some reading about Zinfandel and um, about serving temperatures. And we were, I ordered a bottle of, I wanna say it was like the, um, I think it was Rabbit Ridge Zinfandel, cause I can still remember the the blue color and the rabbit on the the label. And um, the woman in the Oak Room brought it out and I tasted it. And cause I remember we still sort of had that aspect of the ceremony, the presentation of the bottle. And I thought it was a little warm. And so I asked her if she would chill it down a bit. And she looked at me and she's like, you don't chill zinfandel and i was sort of like i mean i had you know i had been drinking you're going to
2: get punched in the face <laughs> i'd been drinking
1: white zinfandel hey not not that nothing wrong with that and i you know you do serve that cold and she kind of looked at me like well this is not white zinfandel and you don't chill it and i remember being so embarrassed like that feeling in your stomach where you're like "Uh, i know nothing i'm sorry i'm sorry i shouldn't even be drinking this and so i always sort of in the back of my head think about you know well how how does somebody feel when you when you when you kind of make them feel embarrassed like that it it turns them off you know that they don't want to drink that ever again or drink anything ever again and so i yeah, always if you're listening
0: and that happens to you walk the hell out of yeah that find a different
1: restaurant and if you want to chill down your your zinfandel go for it we serve our reds too warm to begin with so mm-hmm. i uh, to and this day too cold. to this day i maintain that i was right and she was wrong You know, but if um, you were
2: a customer you are right yeah. so for anyone listening out there that thinks that it's okay for you know a wine steward or a sommelier or, or whoever to just blatantly correct you or just not embrace you as a patron as a guest screw them no the the customer is right Mm -hmm. um there are lots of misconceptions out there about how to drink wine and what temperature to drink wine and and what kind of glass and everything else
0: i've seen plenty of people drop ice into their wine and and if when someone when someone Mm -hmm.
2: buys it they take ownership of it and trust me i mean i was the first person a long time ago to where i would go to an event and i would see you know uh, some people there that were buyers and collectors and um, some physician with his partner would be there and they would, they would be pouring crazy Amarone or some beautiful decadent white Bordeaux and then ka you know, someone grabs some ice and throws it in there. It's like, you know what, son? You paid for it, you know. I always say, I don't give a shit if you like scotch and Skittles. Like, whatever <laughs> you want to do when the product... I'd you, be like M&M's more than Skittles, just, you know. I'm chocolate and scotch, I know. for the With record, goes rather yeah. well. Me, yeah.
1: I'm more sort of bourbon and peanut M&M's, but just... Ooh, a, yeah. That's a great pairing as well. It's, yeah, well, so bourbon guys, and peanuts in general. I know, bourbon and yeah. anything. So. Anybody? Right. I digress. <laughs> bourbon Sorry. country.
2: We digress um, a lot,
0: don't worry. Yeah. <laughs>
2: if uh but if no one in here has had chocolate and dark spirits whether it's rum bourbon scotch chocolate uh, and dark spirits oftentimes goes a lot better than a lot of chocolate, chocolate and, and wine pairings
1: mm. unless we get into madeira but anyway that I, education aspect is so important because when
0: you are on the other side of that counter um you know and it is intimidating you know the first time that i decided we made a conscious decision to learn about like beer that mm-hmm. was nineteen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we went to a liquor store that had they didn't sell any cheap stuff and so they'd never bothered carding us because they didn't think <laughs> by our age <laughs> and their right mind would possibly go in and buy beer that expensive. But when we were setting ourselves to task to do this and a good Strategy. example of, in addition to your Oak Room you story, And I have told this story many times. I was trying to kind of educate one of my friends. This is just a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, with the cocktail scene, you know. Right, you were just nineteen a couple years ago. uh, No, no, no. This is a different story. (laughs) I wish I was nineteen a couple years ago. But I was in the Pacific Northwest. He works for Microsoft. Doesn't uh, he? Sees this as a very snobby kind of business to be Mm -hmm. in. We take our wine too seriously. We take our spirits too seriously. We can sit and talk about all these, like, oh, I smell currants and whatever. And so we uh, went to a cocktail bar in Vancouver Um, trekked up from Seattle and went to Vancouver and we're two of four people in the whole place and (laughs) we got our drinks uh first off I asked the guy you know I'm like what do you recommend on your menu and he looked at me and said I wouldn't put it on the menu if it wasn't good like okay well he's kind of a dick but all right I guess you're not going to help me so I'll just order off of your menu um and then the other two guys come in and they sit next to us and he ordered a Manhattan. The bartender was stirring the Manhattan. And the customer requests, he's like, can you maybe stir it a little bit less? Because I like my Manhattans a little bit less diluted. And the bartender looked at him, and he said, 47 stirs. That's what it needs. I know my ice. You don't know my ice. It takes 47 stirs. Have you ever read The Art of Ice, sir? There's an art of douche ice? Bag. I no. tried looking it up. I Are tried looking up. I haven't seen it. Maybe oh. it's a Canadian publication. <laughs> and I was so pissed at the service that guy got because I hear, I, I am with my friend, that already that's his perception of cocktail bars. Yeah. That they're pretentious fucks behind the bar. Yeah. And here it was, a, a perfect demonstration of what he already had. In his mind. And now you so know why there were only four Those people guys that got the Manhattan, super cool about it. They're like, oh, no, I never read that. And he's like, well, here's what it says. And the bartender stood there and gave him a lesson on ice. When he came back over to us, I was like, yeah, can I get my check? Mm. Like, yeah, I'm the... not going to sit here with an asshole like you when I can get treated really well down the street. I yeah.
2: believe it's an addendum to the ice companion.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I seriously am going to go on Amazon and look that up right now. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I, you know, I think we as an industry have done so much to – Turn off people uh, when it comes to especially wine. I mean, we're our own worst enemy. It's amazing. It's amazing people love wine as much as they do, and they really truly do. I mean, part of what I, I one of the hats I wear too, is in marketing research, and done a bunch of work uh, with consumers and consumer perception of of wine and other products. But when you talk to people about wine. They they they'll admit, you know, I I oh I don't know anything about wine, but they know what they like and they they it's not even they like it, they love it, they enjoy it. That is their their escape, their getaway, that is something mm-hmm. like that they, you know, they share with other people. It comes down you you know, there I always say there's no I in wine because it, it's that we. Um and, and so people between so Yeah <laughs> People rarely talk about wine. And it's a it's a solitary experience. It's almost always about oh, I shared it with so and so or I had this bottle with my friend or with this meal and it's there's always sort of that 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 sharing aspect with wine, and I
0: drink alone. <laughs> you're never drinking alone if you're with your dog.
1: <laughs> See, I told you. <laughs> that's still sharing your wine. Uh, and they now make wine for cats too, so that's another story. Uh, but I, I really do think that that you know we we need to do more to reinforce the idea that that people are making good choices when it comes to selecting wines if they're trying different things and they're experimenting that i think that that's that's great
0: i want to go off and get away from the wine for just one second it's not really getting away from the wine but you just kind of automatically segued me in so there is a wine app out there that yes. helps people do this that you helped to develop I, I did
1: my... yeah i work for a company called wine ring that is one of the other hats that I wear, one of my other projects, um, and I am a, a partner in the company, and we've come up with a way of um, making recommendations off of an individual's personal preference. But what is sort of special about the app is that while we are sort of quote-unquote curating the wines, and, and so they're in the database and we're objectively um, uh, looking at them, analyzing them, it's not my recommendations it's what do you like and and how does your sort of personal preference in wine express itself and so one of the things that was uh, that was so attractive to me about the concept initially was that it it's from the individual out rather than the industry pushing mm-hmm. in and i think that that is something that we you know we don't do enough of when my friends come to me and they say, I want, you know, I need a recommendation for a bottle of wine. And I get this all the time. And you know, my my mom will call me from the wine store, well, what should I buy? And and I go through sort of a litany of, of questions with her. It's like, well, what what do you what are you looking for? Tell me more about what are you eating or what are you know what are you in the mood for? And I, I know my mom's preference is enough to help her pick out a bottle of wine, but I it's not so much about what I think, you know, what I love, because I, I, you know, the things that I like and asking me to pick my favorite wine is just like, that is, sure. I, that's like the hardest question. It's like question. asking you to pick your
0: favorite cat.
1: Well, I only have one now. Oh, so you don't have eight anymore? No, I've, unfortunately, with all senior cats within the last uh, year or two, have, we've, uh, we're down to, to one right now. So we do have multiple dogs, but, um, and I only have one child. So that makes that an easy question too. Um <laughs> But we do have multiple fish, so I could probably have to pick a favorite Look fish. Look around the house. Someone's um, <laughs> missing.
0: Oh, wait, it's the kid. The dogs are all here.
1: <laughs> but, you know, it's it's. I have my personal preferences, but mm-hmm. they might not be your personal preferences. And yet I think one of the other interesting things that wondering can do is sort of overlap those to see – where we might find an intersection and find something that we would both enjoy. But it's, that's been a, a, one of the more fascinating projects I've, I've ever worked on is, is this idea of sort of understanding consumer preferences. And um, one of the interesting things that, we, that we've been doing is sort of building the database over the last few years. And part of that is involved users submitting their wines. And what people are actually truly drinking... Is a little. It's almost. It's mind blowing, really. What people are actually submitting. Get, yeah. It's not necessarily. I mean, you you do see what people are buying in terms of top numbers and things like that. But they're they're also drinking a lot of other stuff and a lot of flavored wines, a lot of local wines, and so what people submit within the app. Um, I think you know a lot of times we think about a certain, especially once you're in the wine industry, we think about this sort of tier, this top tier of wines, and yet. It, it goes like this. And so you're only kind of looking at, at a, a small segment, and you, you kind of have to get your mind wrapped around just, there's so much out there. There's so much different stuff out there. And so that's, um, I think, the marketing research side. The, the research person in me just loves all of that and so enjoys it.
2: In light of the discussion on all the consumer preferences and all the options out there, um, the app, other resources, the extraordinary uh, just umbrella, of academia which I, I i agree with with sherry 100 percent over like every 100 people um uh what the hell is that damn statistic i used to say this all the time <laughs> oh yeah one out of 100 people on the planet work in some capacity with with the wine uh business and you can do the kevin bacon thing like tie everything oh, yeah. with few degrees of separation back to wine, wine. And wine. you know geology um, biology, you know, chemistry, winemaking, business—all this stuff. Regardless of all that, uh, the most important thing is don't take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to remember that it should be about enjoyment. Um, you got, you have to find people out there—retailers, uh, wine stewards, and restaurants, industry professionals—that can hear your wine voice and help facilitate the enjoyment process. Never allow yourself to feel intimidated. And if you have friends out there that are collectors or would presume you to know that they are collectors, um, don't give them too much credit. (laughs) (laughs) They they probably don't know as much as they think they know, especially if they insist that you think they know Mm -hmm. about wine. That's a big red flag, okay? Wine unfortunately becomes a pissing contest uh, within many social circles. And it never should. It what I think is funny not. about
0: that, though, is that very often the people that get the snobbiest about wine are, you know, on the retail side of it. Right. The, the the psalms that are out there. Not every, of course. I mean, there's there's a divide. You know, there's the people that are very serious about it, but are very realistic about it. And there's the people that just take themselves way too seriously. But I have yet to meet a winemaker like that they're all oh they're out there mm. i'm sure they're so i'm, out I'm there, sure man. but i've met so I know a many a lot of i've winemakers. met a lot of winemakers that they're i mean at their core they're still farmers i mean there's some yeah. guys that yes. aren't you know there's wine, wine owners yeah but there's still guys that are out there in the fields every day and there's definitely a disparity between i mean people don't think about that when they pick up a glass of, right. uh, or pick up a bottle of expensive wine they don't think you know there's a guy that is literally getting his woman. hands filthy, or, or woman, like anybody. I mean, well, or migrant workers, or yes. whatever. Oh, I mean, go work
2: harvest, man. It's it's not romantic. No. If you don't come back with cuts and bruises, you're oh, not yeah. you're not working.
0: And that's what I was getting at. Like, I mean, there's people out there. I mean, it's a farming job at mm-hmm. the beginning. You know, there's a lot of that goes in afterwards, but yep. it like starts it with growing winery, yeah, grapes. All right, so we need
2: to get to these wines and. Oh, okay. Usually, I'm the one where, like, you pull a string and it's just like, blah, blah, blah. blah. Obviously, Sherry and I have a lot in common in that capacity. (laughs) She rattled through a bunch of stuff about Arroyo Seco. She talked about um, clonal variations of grape type. She talked about uh, vine density. She talked about winds and and climatic conditions. Everything she was getting at, basically, in summary, is is saying that over time, Monterey has moved from something that was producing a little bit uh, more industrially, um, or at least larger uh, amounts of wine. And through all these conscientious endeavors um, between management of the vineyard, planting appropriate grapes, they are emerging and have been emerging as a very high quality wine region, even though it doesn't have the sort of fame as Napa. And you gotta remember, everyone has heard of Napa, but it only represents 4% of all California production. There are tons of other Appalachians in California and around the United States, that are making some really awesome stuff, and the winery that we have two wines to taste today do represent that that sort of conscientious awareness of appropriately matching certain grapes to certain areas, and that's very important when you're talking about grapes like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, um, Pinot Noir especially that are pretty damn finicky and unforgiving, and uh, they're very selectors, uh, very selective in the the lovers um, in terms of the land that they um, are compatible with. Yep. So um, are there a, a few things you want to mention about Scott Family Estate itself, and then we'll, we'll taste sure. through a Chardonnay and a pinot?
1: Yeah, um, so a family owned uh, property, um, and they own, uh, I think there are four or five, I think there are five now, uh, different vineyards within the Arroyo Seco Appalachian. Um, one kind of on the, the valley floor, mm-hmm. one sort of, Arroyo Seco, if you, if you can kind of imagine it, it almost looks like New York State, Kind of flipped around, and so there's this one piece of it that is called the the gorge that goes out. It's almost like Long Island, and um, that is actually an area that kind of warms up a little bit sooner uh, and and gets um, uh, some more sunshine. The fog lifts there uh, first, and so that is actually where they grow um, a few more of the Bordeaux varietals. Uh, But then there are some other vineyards that they have kind of at that elbow uh, of the of the. Kind of the valley floor around the riverbed and um, and up into the gorge, uh, and so it gives them a really interesting palette to play with in terms of the the pinot noir and the and the chard that they're producing. Um, one of the things that I think is is always so interesting about these wines um, is this idea of acidity and um, that when we when we usually do these tastings, we've got the arroyo seco Chard next to the carnero shard, the arroyo seco Pinot next to the Russian River Valley Pinot and you've got the same variety and you've got um, usually the same vintage that you're comparing and it's always really interesting to see the different expressions of the grape and so there are some similarities there's some slight differences between these in terms of um, the amount of oak the amount of malolactic fermentation and um, and all of that but essentially it's a very similar approach to winemaking and yet what you see is is a different expression of the right different
2: structural differences so certain grapes out there have inherent Tendencies in terms of acid levels, their ability to ripen sugars, thus make more alcoholic or less alcoholic wines. And that's going to change uh, depending on the climatic conditions in the place it's planted. So um, a wine's great variety, or a great variety's natural um, acidity is, is going to be further determined into the wine that it is made into by climatic conditions. Cooler climates, usually yield more acidic grapes, thus more acidic wines. And you had mentioned Bordeaux grape varieties, which we're talking about, um, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, a few others, they dig on warmer climates. So when she mentioned the, the gorge portion of this, you could be in a cool area like Monterey, but there could be a warmer, like um, sort of macro climate that you could do some warmer climate grape varieties like Cab Merlot. Um, whereas, uh, the Chardonnay and the Pinot, I'd assume, uh, are not heavily planted in the gorge area, but a little bit further away. And, and this appellation, though, new and up and coming, um, maybe some of you guys have heard of St. Lucia Highlands, which is a little more famous for Monterey. And this is sort of on the ass end of Santa Lucia Highlands on the, the sort of Southern tip of it. You didn't, you didn't like the ass <laughs> no, end? No, no, no.
1: That's that just, just cracked me up. That's all.
2: He said ass. <laughs> um, so, Breaking
0: down the pretense of wine right there. <laughs> it's on the ass end.
2: There's, there's no room for it. That's a technical term. Um, that's right. So uh, that. Chardonnay. And uh, this is a small... like. How big is the Appalachian Seco? It's pretty small, right?
1: Uh, right now, I think they're around under 19,000 um, acres planted.
2: Okay. So, yeah, that that's pretty small. Some regions around the world are pretty damn big. She mentioned Bordeaux a few times. Porto is like 300,000 acres, all right? And uh, if you ever heard of Champagne, it's like 85,000, 90,000 acres. So 19,000 acres is, is pretty damn small um, in a global context for a region.
1: So do you want to taste these? Or are
2: you, no, you guys No, yeah. not at all. Do you want to taste
0: them? You guys already uh, have. Glass number three, let's go. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs>
2: Ed's tasted them just fine. <laughs> uh, I'm still working on my first glass, but don't mind if I do. So, uh, Scott Family State Chardonnay, and this is labeled Oreo Seco. It um, is?
1: Yep. And it, it's the Dijon, Dijon Clone.
0: Dijon Clone, yeah.
2: It's 2015. So, mm-hmm. before we get over ahead of ourselves and start talking about clonal variations, which I'm sure Sherry's going to do, um, 2015 is a vintage. It's a very modestly priced wine. I mean, these retail for probably. I uh, like uh, 20, 23, maybe? Something like that, yeah. This is why we're educators and not salespeople. <laughs> uh, like price and, you know, cost is usually the last thing on our mind, although we're supposed to be able to taste and assess <laughs> exactly. price but and cost. But it's accessible, and I guess, is yeah.
0: the point. I mean, this is something that you can go it's out there. and get, And it's not 40 or 70 or 80 You bucks. mentioned
2: the very beginning, like... Since it's a lesser-known appellation, it doesn't have the kind of prestige and the fame um, or the expensive real estate that Napa has. And when you're paying thousands and thousands of dollars per acre and the way real estate is a vendor-owned, that's going to translate to an extremely expensive wine. So. Absolutely a lot of growers go out there and they find these other areas that haven't been as tapped to the extent that they could for quality regions. And they make really awesome wines that are every bit as competitive with, with other more famous appellations.
0: That's where the deals are. You know, I mean, when I'm looking right. at a wine list, if, if it's a substantial wine list, I don't even bother. I just go get the som because I don't, don't want to comb through 700 pages, but yeah, I'm like, God. I find the most esoteric, wine on the list because it's probably there because comb the, the, the desert because the that's psalm right. or wine director is obsessed with it right and maybe that's that's the lost leader or like man we sell like a bottle every couple months the kind of thing but there's a lot of deals in that i always tell yeah. people don't. have you don't ever seen that the- video
1: the the second cheapest wine no no oh there's some really hysterical videos out there um but one is about uh ordering wine and there's something called like the second cheapest wine, and it, it, it's a very funny. Uh, the internet, the, the interwebs, uh, are a wonderful yeah. thing. Well, I
0: always tell everybody, you know, like if, if by all means, if you're going into a restaurant and you would just want a glass of wine, go for it. But if you're gonna get a bottle, you know, yeah. if you're gonna, have you're, more than you're than gonna one get glass, a better deal get a by getting some of the more expensive bottles on that list because, as a restaurateur, um, we just literally can't mark them up the way that we should be able to uh, on some of our lesser expensive wines. No one's going to go out and buy a $700 bottle of wine right. at where your dinner is going to cost you 50 bucks. All right, so so it, you've got to make it affordable.
2: We need to drink these damn delicious wines because I want to get to something we were supposed to bring up oh, okay. about reality TV. Oh, oh you didn't <laughs>
1: forget. And, okay. and Wingman. This yes.
2: came, just came up I. I. At over cocktails last night. i going to dive into the
1: Pinot here. Okay, I got So the Chard... Um, this is, uh, it sees um, a little bit of a mix of American and French oak. It's partial uh, malolactic, um, it's around 14 and a half percent alcohol. But I think what's what's really um, nice about this wine is uh, it's the very um, accessible fruit that really juicy mix of citrus fruit and yet some tropical fruit, touch of vanilla, but at its core, it has this really nice sort of refreshing acidity. Um, it's really interesting uh, to pair this again side by side with the Carneros and see the difference there. The Carneros has generally a bit more of a of a broader feel across the mouth feel across the mouth, and and this is a bit more linear. Um, linear. Um, I'm making gestures with my hands like a flight attendant. <laughs> That's a line, this
0: yes. This is, Imagine you know, her the directing you down the aisle. Uh, it's a runway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the broader would be the exits yes. over the wings. Yes, <laughs> would be
1: Carneros. <laughs> this is Arroyo Seiko. Uh, fashion over your Bye-bye,
0: bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye.
1: But I think you know, this is, um, these frequently are a bit also more accessible when they're younger compared to, say, the Carneros and the Russian River Valley, so on both the... Um, Chardonnay and the Pinot side of the Oro Seco. Um, but I, I just, they're just easy drinking. They're not really, really big alcoholic um, oak bombs either. Uh, these are, they're, it's a bit more of a restrained style. And I mean, it's funny to use the word restrained with, with California, but I think you find that more and more that people are producing things that are not, um, you know, really alcoholic and sweet. And and very, very oaky. And so I think what this does is if you've got somebody who likes Chardonnay, but they're looking for a particular style, you know, they're not looking for as much oak, they're looking for a bit more acidity, you know, this is something that kind of fits the bill. And then you have um, within the Scott family, there's the Rutherford Wine Company, there's the Rutherford Ranch Wines, and then there's Scott Family Estate, so different estates and properties within the portfolio. You've also got the Rutherford Ranch Carnero Chardonnay, which has 100% uh, new oak. And so you, you see, or sorry, it's 100% oak, and I think it's 85% new. So then you see a bigger, fuller expression of Chardonnay and more oak. So you have kind of, I think people are starting to to have a preference within Chardonnay for different styles. And this is something I think that um, can easily fit
2: yeah, so all flavor in a glass of wine um, coming from like a, a blind taster or deductive tasting can be traced to essentially some, some, some major points. And there's, the rabbit hole goes deep and there's tons of variables. But any glass of wine is going to taste the way it tastes because of, one, the grape it's made from, in this case Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Two, the location that it is cultivated in. And you're talking about climatic conditions and soil structures. Three, the thumbprint of the winemaker. How's it being made? No oak. Oak. New oak, old oak, small barrel, big barrel, American, French, Slovenian oak, et cetera, et cetera. And then lastly, the age of the wine itself, because wine is a living, breathing thing. It does age and and, and does um, not necessarily always in the best way, but it it evolves over over time in the bottle. Um, So, like, oak coming to that third point um, can have an extraordinary impact on on a wine and and totally... um, Sort of change the the character um, of something that doesn't spend time in oak. So, in a very sort of simple layman sort of discussion, um, you know, what is it about, um, or how does oak, in your opinion, really change the flavor of wine, the texture of a wine, um, the the character of a wine? <laughs> layman
0: discuss. No, well, I mean, I was just thinking about this, that this too. This is not so, an essay like, question. As you were talking about that, I was like, you know, I we see a lot of customers that come in like oh i don't like my wine super oaky Mm -hmm. you never hear that from that exact same customer when they order a bourbon or rum or Mm. something else that has been aged in oak and you know i wonder if people just don't understand what oak does to a wine
1: yeah i mean i i think also with those with those other beverages with spirits um i think I think the nature of the oak, the character of the oak, how it's expressed is is very different, especially because you have such a high level of of alcohol that you're dealing with. That on the nose, I think that can really change everything, change the experience. Um, I think with oak, um, gosh, that, in many ways, that's sort of that's a that's a really tough question. I think you, from a consumer standpoint. If you think about the spectrum of flavors and aromas that you get with Chardonnay, um, when it's unoaked, you tend to get something that's more sort of floral and citrusy. And then as you move along the spectrum of oak, you get much more, and the more, the higher the percentage of new oak, you get much more vanilla and toast and um, butter and. Uh, and sort of baking spices and and so I think you you have to kind of start to figure out what and and both styles can actually you can you you can have a preference for both. I mean, it's not like you can like one no, or the absolutely. other. but I think to start to understand that when it's when the wine is unoaked, you get much more of the sort of primary fruit of the grape versus when it's oaked. you have more of the process and how it's made impacting the aroma and the flavor. You
2: have some different additional layers. Yeah. And Ed, you t- like touched on a, a kind of a cool comparison just to throw out there. Like mm-hmm. Certain grapes are more expressive, um, that is more floral, more exotic. They jump out of the glass a little bit more, whereas other grapes are a little bit more neutral. And you mentioned bourbon and oak and corn as a, as a base ingredient in spirit production is very, um, it yields a very neutral spirit. So mm-hmm. it, it enables it to be a really awesome canvas to assimilate all the flavors of oak and, and showcase oak. Um, if there's anyone who's ever had moonshine versus <laughs> aged bourbon, you can relate to what I'm talking about. And Chardonnay on Sorry, this, this is,
0: 2017, now we call that white whiskey.
2: Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. White dog, <laughs> yeah. white whiskey, white lightning. Good way to
0: rebrand something that tastes or terrible. Or something that a young <laughs>
2: distillery makes because they don't have, they haven't had time to, to age it yet. Whatever. I always say
0: the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was getting you to drink white whiskey. <laughs> it stuff's terrible.
2: Or convincing you he didn't exist. Yeah, well, I was a twist on that. Which Come on, man. You I know, used to, I would never believed in, in the devil, but recent political
0: <laughs>
2: circumstances <laughs> are, are... You revenge. like that
1: Saturday Night Live skit where... You, where uh, where um, Bannon is played by the group Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Death
0: uh, You know what? I think that, that this... Oh, we digress. This administration might resurrect... SNL just entirely. Oh, they are. They already I mean, have, it's, yeah, yeah, there's more people watching SNL so in the last three
2: months. SNL, live it up as long as you can before you get shut down from some sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. state By censorship. The department so,
0: of uh, television censorship?
2: Corn, oak, bourbon, um, Chardonnay, very much in the same way, is a relatively neutral grape varietal, although it's, it's, um, it's one of the more regal, like white wines you'll have out there. Mm-hmm. If you drink really decadent, amazing, crazy expensive white burgundy, mm-hmm. um, if you are partial to Chablis, anyone who knows me knows it's one of my desert island wines. Absolutely. Um, and then some, some new world Chardonnays that can be very age worthy <laughs> and, and, and very regal mm-hmm. um, in its nature. It's, it's, it's a relatively neutral grape compared to something like Riesling or Gewurztraminer, And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people will put it into oak because it's blank canvas uh, allows it to assimilate all those lovely vanilla, butter, toast, baking spices, coconut, lactic qualities. Making me thirsty.
0: Um, it's a good thing we've got this beautiful wine in front you of us. You should have a
2: third glass, Ed.
0: Well, I'm working on the Pinot
2: now. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, we tasted through the Chardonnay. Yep. Uh, it does have wonderful structure to uh, to yeah, share your point. Yeah, strong acid-driven wine, a little bit of oak in there, mm-hmm. um, great fruit to it. Uh, let's move on to the Pinot. To the
1: Pinot. So um, California Pinot, uh, to me, has, has struggled a bit over the years because I think, uh, especially, I mean, if you go back and sort of look at the sideways phenomenon, What a sad movie! uh, Just amazing to me what uh, what that did. The industry
2: impact was pretty remarkable.
1: It was it was crazy, but I mean, again, that goes back to my whole philosophy about the wine wingman uh, reality TV thing that we'll get to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My theory on life, and uh, and so it it definitely had an impact. But one of the things that we saw from that was this need for um, more affordable, excuse me, um, peanut. Noir from California. And there was a lot of pinot, I think, that was planted in places that weren't great for pinot. Uh, Yes. And so to me, a lot of California pinot has this sort of what I can best describe sort of my association with it is if you've ever grown tomatoes and you've gone out to your garden and handled the tomatoes and then come back and smelled your hands that there's an overripe underripe character to me a green a pungence yeah then I get that on a lot of you know sort of lower end um pinot noir that Mm -hmm. in my head the sort of explanation that that I have is it's planted in a place where it ripens sort of too quickly without there are components to it that don't have the opportunity to catch up. So you have this combination of under-ripeness and over-ripeness at the same time. And I think what you start to see in places that are more appropriate for for Pinot Noir, places where they've found in California that have sort of either a cooler spot or this um, these sort of characteristics that that enhance the um, the diurnal temperature variations, such as fog and wind and um, and things like that. So that the situation that you have in places like Cornaros and Russian River Valley and Seco, um, you get. Much less of that. And you get more of a purity of fruit and a ripe fruit character, which is what I think you have here on on the Arroyo Seco Pinot. Um, yesterday when we were tasting these, it was really interesting to see uh, there was more of a cherry and almost slight cherry cola, cherry mm-hmm. vanilla character on the Arroyo Seco versus more of a raspberry character on the Russian river valley. And, um, I'll be interested to see when we do them side by side today, if that later, that if, um, if that sort of carries forth, cause actually, you know, on different days, you, you yeah, kind yeah, of, you taste the different. wine speaks differently yeah. to you. So we'll, we'll mm. kind of see, but, um, but I do get this very, um, sort of clean, pure, ripe fruit character in the Aurora Seco Pinot.
2: So uh, Pinot is not a grape that you can plant in haste and often, oftentimes it's not a grape that grape. you can, can cultivate in a cost savings capacity um other I
0: think great sideways p- you screwed us all <laughs> uh, no, honestly really because no. if, if if oh people, no i remember the pinot oh people hear wave, about Pinot. That so that whole movie just like after that from Jesus. a marketing
2: perspective someone who might make more modestly priced red blends or something is like why the hell aren't we selling a pinot so mm-hmm. they will plant pinot or get pinot from wherever they can and they're, they're kind of rushing it. And I mentioned earlier that it's not a very forgiving grape. Yeah. Um, other grapes can transcend price points easier than Pinot. Yes. Like Cabernet is a great variety. If you drink a $10 Cabernet coming out of Argentina or Chile and you drink a $30, $40 Napa um, and then you even go up to scale, it's they're all gonna have certain Cabernet characteristics. Dark fruit, herbal characteristics, tannins in the mouth, grip. Little bit of, of massivity and, and, and some degree of muscle to it. Pinot Noir, if you don't like Pinot Noir, is simultaneously one of the most beautiful wines in the world and also one of the most horrible, disappointing there's, wines. There's in not the
1: really world. good average, you know, no, average. No, it's, it's no. not really, me, you know, you can't do mediocre Pinot and have no, it be yeah, tasty really. Don't,
2: don't, don't do it, you <laughs> know, water. just get all in. And I'm not saying that you have to spend thousands of dollars on your Pinot Noir because I have had $1000 bottles of Pinot you do, Noir. You do need to spend a bit kinda, though.
0: Like it's well, not you, one you of if step you see up. an $8 mm-hmm. glass of Pinot, you probably don't. It if I ever It's not going to be the finest example.
2: If I drink a bottle of Pinot Noir that's retailing at like 15 bucks and it actually resembles Pinot Noir like score yeah. win. And there's only a handful of places that you Let's can see, find. Run that across them, there's some
0: really nice ones out there, but they're they're few and far between.
2: Going up into the mid twenties, low twenties, mm-hmm. high twenties is a much safer spot. And then yeah. you know, moving on up, you're going to get start talking to your retailers and your wine stewards because there there are big labels that do cost a lot of money that you know might not be to your liking um, because people, producers of Pinot Noir one, know it's an expensive grape to, to make, but two, they also know that there's a, a section of consumers, is, there's a demographic that are willing to spend big money on Pinot Noir. So I'm not saying every Pinot that's 50 is going to be mind-blowing, you know, far from it. Um, but it, it's not a great, like...
0: You got a better shot at it.
2: Yes. I, the, there's a correlation between quality and and price point that I think is a little bit more sound than some other great varieties out there um and this one again is is probably something that retails in the upper 20s um this is arroyo seco appellation as well Mm -hmm. uh it is 2014 what we're drinking and um before we start talking about wine and wingman reality tv uh it is labeled with dijon clones yep uh grapes out there have different Variants grapes are particularly mutagous. they mutate from improper cellular
0: reproduction. In case you weren't confused already, let Arthur continue. <laughs> I'm gonna button this up into a down, nice break little thing. it down, down, man. Show us. Well, occasionally these
2: these clonal variations happen, or they're they're produced in a lab that are very favorable to certain conditions or flavor profiles or whatever. And Pinot probably has what a hundred clonal variants. Oh, Pinot, I mean
1: Pinot is one of the most mutant grapes pinot is uh in particular i mean it's one of the oldest grapes that we think um was domesticated over if
2: Pinot was an x-men what kind of which x-men would it be i I honestly have never thought that i don't know why but you said mutant and who was the scarlett
1: johansson character
2: she's just awesome but that's avengers
1: oh okay sorry well it doesn't matter that would be (laughs) something uh, like that
0: (laughs) ah mystique mystique if changes I'm, constantly. If yeah. this glass is Scarlett Johansson, See?
2: I'm going to get my face in it. <laughs> oh,
0: my God.
1: Okay, then. <laughs> Maybe I should have uh, gone with like, Hugh a, Jackman. I don't what
0: know. Was oh, no, that was Angelina <laughs> Jolie. Yeah, well, yeah. Hugh Jackman. This, is. The, the Chardonnay is more Hugh Jackman, and, and the, the Pinot is definitely more Scarlett. Wolverine's badass. <laughs> Wolverine's a badass. Absolutely. Although,
1: Isn't there a new movie out? It's that's so gotten, good. Really? I've you, heard oh, bad reviews. It's
0: emotional. But it's good. People okay. said that, like, it's not just like rage. I'm no, not like that. But it. it is rated R. So, like, it, it's they they put that rate, R rating out there in the first five minutes, right. I and mean, oh, you okay. start seeing like claws through foreheads. Ah, oh. it's, uh, it's yeah. My wife was like shielding her eyes. You know, <laughs> she's not into the blood and gore. But it it was it was a great film of uh, really great child actors in it. And, so back uh, to Scarlett Johansson.
1: <laughs> back to Pino.
0: Yeah, Pinot Noir. We Scarlett Johansson, oh, right? We were talking, yeah, about, talking clones. about clones. Take it away,
1: that's Sherry. where we that's where we, we went wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna reflect
2: on mine. <laughs>
1: you think about Scarlet. Um, <laughs> so the the clonal thing here, the Dijon clone, why that is kind of uh, is a focus for the Scott Family Estate wines, um, has to do with the fact that again, when they when they started doing a lot of planting in the 60s and 70s, they were using a lot of the clones that have been used in other places in California, including we've all many of us are familiar. With like the Wente clone and, and things like that, so but again, they h- hadn't kind of taken into consideration some of the other climatic influences, including the wind and the fog and um, the temperature variation, the coolness of the climate, and so they started doing some as they were you know making these wines and having um, feeling like they were you know not the style profile that they wanted to. They started thinking about what can we do. To to change that, let's look at at clonal usage, and they started looking at what was being done in Oregon with clones, where they had brought in more of the Burgundian clones, the Dijon clones for Pinot and Chardonnay, and they said, um, you know, let's give that kind of a try and see how those do because they were um, adapting better to the climate in Oregon and Lammt Valley, and they thought, you know, we might have a, a better shot with those clones versus some of the California clones that are used to, that are looking for more sunshine and more warmer uh, temperatures. So they, um, you can find kind of a a diversity of clones down within Arroyo Seco, um, but the Scott family has really focused in on uh, the Dijon clone for their vineyards, their Chardonnay and Pinot vineyards in Arroyo Seco.
2: And, you know, uh, oftentimes if someone is utilizing a particular clone and they're putting on a label, I mean, that is like a yeah, it's, a, it's a benefit. They want you to see it's a certain clone because they're proud of utilizing that particular clone. Um, I guess, in short, don't get wrapped up in clonal specifics. Just, you know, right. know I mean, there's some ver- there. there are very famous grapes that are out there um, for a number of different grape varieties because many different grapes um, will mutate and there'll be variations and in, in, in clonal types. Um, something else to, to engage your retailer with or your wine steward mm-hmm. if you want to go there. But if they start talking like uh, I was talking, uh, tell them to walk away and get back to your dinner. <laughs> right. Remember, this is supposed to be fun. You don't want a dissertation.
0: Yeah, I mean, as long as they know. And, you know, I, before we kind of wrap up the day, um, you know, as people, if we've got some complete novices out there and they're going to hit the wine store, and, you know, this, this what you've done in your career is mm-hmm. amazing, and that path is out there, but to take that first step like you did, when you were young and kind of really hitting those restaurants and trying those experiences in Italy and whatnot, it all starts somewhere. But you know, I think it's so intimidating, especially in this day and age where you can get your hands on a lot more than maybe we could when we were a little bit younger. Um, you know, when they're going to the wine store, is that, is that your recommendation? Just ask the, the ask the uh, owner we, or whoever. Yeah, working. I mean,
1: a talk to. There's so many different resources out there these days. Whether it... I mean, there are a variety of different wine apps, including websites. Wine and, sure, Wine Ring, um, and and there are others too. I mean, you know, it's uh, I will I will say that um, obviously, you know, I'm partial to the one I've worked on, but still, um, there are a lot of other resources out there. Um, one of the things that I think. Is a way to kind of look at it um, that can be a fun thing to do. Is to say, get a group of people together, and everybody brings a different bottle, and you, you know, everybody splits the cost, and maybe you're lowering the cost of, of money that you're spending on wine that way. But 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 have some fun with it. Try different things. Um, you know, uh, there are so many different great wine bars out there now too. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so trying things by the glass, um, just not being afraid to mm-hmm. try something you don't know. And, yeah, and get into some weird stuff, yeah.
0: you know, because there's some, I mean, there's, I, I am not a master of wine, but uh, you know, we've been, but you play I one own on restaurant, TV. <laughs> but I play one on TV. I play one on a podcast. Um, no, I mean, we, we taste, 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 taste. And mm-hmm. it's not an, a rare occasion when someone comes in with a Portuguese wine or a Greek yeah. wine and are like, you know, what kind of varietals are in this? And mm-hmm. Even the rep that's coming in, like I can't pronounce any of these names. You know, oh, these uh, are so. So that
1: like... is actually one of the things that I think is one of the biggest barriers to to wine consumption and why people end up sometimes getting getting caught. And it's something they can I pronounce guess Chardonnay. I, am, they can well, pronounce I, I guess I'm, I'm particularly passionate about it because I have zero ability with languages. I speak a little bit of German. Yeah. I have struggled. I have tried to learn French. Do you um, not speak French. I, I suck at you French. You spend a lot of time. I there. know. Yes. All I right. suck at it. My pronunciation is terrible yeah so yeah. I even worked with French wine for years um, and part of why they hired me is that I could uh, completely say with a straight face you don't have to speak French to drink French because I don't speak French um, I get a little bit worked up sometimes about pronunciation when I'm doing a presentation like I'll go to forvo.com and practice my pronunciations of different <laughs> things I'm not kidding um, because I just, it is not my strong suit at all. So I have great sympathy for people who are like, oh, uh, I'll just point to that on the menu because I've done that too. I've been like, yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. I know how to say that grape sort of, kind of, but um, not 100% sure. And I don't
2: want to embarrass in myself. New York, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I mean, living here in Indianapolis, it took me like three years after studying like Austrian wines to find out how to pronounce sure. like, New Zealandersy. Like I finally went to like a campus and like the language department. And I was like, "Excuse me, hello." <laughs> right. And this is dating I, myself because this was apparently before you know Google language. Yeah. Oh, know, I'm always pronunciation.
1: forvo.com Forvo.com, I'm telling you is like a genius it is good. genius website. And
2: there is a great book out there, although I think it's out of print and it gets kind of pricey. But how to pronounce uh, like German, mm-hmm. Italian, uh, French wine labels? It's
1: it's and those are. Well, I'm glad you're not that I know. I've
0: been to a couple. Couple nice restaurants, you know, mm-hmm. with, with stars, um, and the the psalm's always, you know, if you do the, the tasting menu, you get you know ten different wines from all over the world, right? And I, it cracks me up every time the psalm comes over and tells me what I'm drinking, but it says it completely in that country's accent and I'm like I know you're not Chardonnay we are drinking Chardonnay (laughs) Uh, here today (laughs)
1: another (laughs)
2: big
0: sign another
2: big flag for a douchebag. like you know I don't know I I give
1: him a pass if they got
0: Michelin three star I will give
2: him that I don't I don't like I would like a bottle of the Brunello de Montalcino. that's Fine, as opposed to I would like a bottle of Brunello di Montalcino. Like where the hell right. did Mario come from? Right. 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 You yeah. know. I just
1: I think it's it's one of those things that again we get really sort of wrapped up about and twist it. You know, you have to be able to pronounce it to drink it.
2: Tomacco. Yeah, and and it's <laughs> right. just Chateau oh, works just fine, man. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: we don't tend to have an issue if 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 you've got a French winemaker sitting here and he's talking about. Um, you know, some place in Napa Valley or in, you know, some place in California, and he is pronouncing that with a French accent, we don't sit there and go like, oh, that's actually not how you say that. I mean, <laughs> right, we think, oh, yeah. that sounds really lovely and beautiful, and I'm swooning slightly. But it doesn't, the, the reverse doesn't work. And so, if you know, I, I do the best that I can, and I try and, and get it right. But at the same time, I think what really matters is, is in mm-hmm. the bottle. And, you know, it's just you, you do the best you can. And and it is it is not my gift. My brother got the ear for languages, and I did not. Do and you so know?
2: Because we have we found out last night we have a number of mutual friends. Do you know uh, Nico Polosi of PM Spirits?
1: Yes, I know that name. Is All it right. Pelosi yeah. or Palazzi? Yes, 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 yes.
2: Uh, I think it's Polizzi. I um, but that could be me and my, like...
0: I have no idea I Always I said Palazzi, because it looks Italian.
1: Potato, potato.
2: No, he, he was distinctively French. He's, you know, from uh, from the Charente. It's um, you
0: and Peter Curry. I, I see razzing Nico all the time online. Like, oh, you said when wanna, you come in, I'll, I'll be your translator, although Nico speaks English just fine with, with a heavy French accent. Peter Curry, who's Scottish, you know, those guys go at it on social media like... What you're saying? I need a translator. Listen to your damn <laughs> no, ass, absolutely. You know? And I
2: reserve the right to bust Nico's balls about anything because he's the first to deliver it back to me. It's one of the reasons why I love him. But he's going to be a guest they of ours so in a few bro-ed weeks. So
0: out when hit there. Uh, he's together. awesome, man.
2: I, I man, absolutely. Jim you know,
0: rats is like all this kind of testosterone flowing.
2: I got much respect for Nico, but it's because real hard to understand guy. what the hell he's saying. And when he comes, <laughs> that's
0: not true.
2: When I when he comes <laughs> to Indianapolis, I'm like, hey, if we get lost and separated you're a you're dumb mute,
0: <laughs> oh my don't God. speak, you know?
2: You're gonna get hurt, uh, oh my depending God. on what side of town we're on,
0: if we're down in southern Indiana or something. In- well, we've alluded to it about 100 times now, and so I'm dying to know. Oh, is that, I, and now I feel like I, the
1: buildup, is gonna like, be that I mean, that you, you. But you have this theory, and we
0: never got to the theory about so this connection between feel, wine and reality television.
1: I feel like, um, I feel like The Bachelor, played a role in i know you need to start cracking up in <laughs> in changing perceptions and the portrayal of alcohol in particular wine really? on television. Yes. What? And and I've actually written about this years ago. I did a, a It was her thesis for a master. Yeah. yeah. No, not exactly, but but close enough. Um so so I feel like wine has never succeeded Um, on television the way like if you look at cooking shows and and a number of Mm, people have tried and and part of that is because I think you know it's the experience about wine um, and you can only show so many vineyard scenes and, and things like that but you put wine in a supporting role and it changes the dynamic and if you look at 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 how wine has then been portrayed on specifically uh, with reality TV shows, and then and then it sort of caught on with other television shows, too, if you think about, um, what was that, Cougartown, Town, uh, the one where they were always drinking like giant glasses of wine, and it, it, it sort of, with The Bachelor in particular, the very early years of The Bachelor, um, I mean this in, in all sincerity, if you watched how wine actually, especially in the first few years, they had two winemakers who were who were bachelors, and they would go and visit. Even when it wasn't a winemaker, they went and visited wine regions. They did a whole thing in New Zealand at one point. Oh, there was always a date in a one winery. Was one of
2: those in the Benzinger family?
1: Andrew Firestone, and then one was. Um, yeah. Okay. The other one who was. Uh, uh, partners, um, Ben, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. uh, All right. I've never seen this
0: show, but I'm like, I feel like I'm missing out on a wine show. You're not missing on a show.
1: actually what's really, really interesting is with this latest iteration of the bachelor, you saw more spirits being drunk than wine. Ah, So the bachelor was not a wine drinker this go round. He was, it was, I don't know whether it was scotch or bourbon or, or, you know, but something—it was sort of more brown spirit, and obviously, you know, cocktail glass kind of thing. Spirit. Well, I think bad. that informed the industry so,
0: trend right there.
1: Yes, and so you would watch these people. There was always wine, and always some sort of you know association with the the number of dates where they went on, you know, wine regions and whatever. And then they've actually this season released their own bachelor wines. But then you actually saw it sort of spreading. If you look at the reality um, sort of world in terms of the rest reality TV world, the, the Real Housewives shows. That and the, I, and, I
0: have to admit, and, and I hate to admit, I've seen but a lot of because my wife watches
1: it. wine, big role, right. so that so many of them actually release their own they're wines. They're always
0: drinking wine. They're usually not drinking that great of wine, right. but they're always drinking But they're always it.
1: drinking wine. And there was something accessible about that that I felt like you started to see that trickle down effect. Like, oh well, they're doing it. That's what you're supposed to do. You're getting together with your girlfriends. You're, you know, dating twenty five women, dating one man. You should go have a glass of wine. But I, I really do think, that, <laughs> I really do think, in all seriousness, that there was something if about you're 25 that. You're
0: dating twenty five women. You yeah, need to be drinking yeah. more than a glass. Need a that, Coke that habit. Wine had <laughs> right. really
1: not been shown on TV in in the same way, and it it there was a dynamic that shifted. Slightly, and uh, and the the way that it came through was wine as the ultimate wingman.
0: That's interesting. So um, you. That's mentioned, my crazy
1: theory, and why I can justify watching. And you Backstrom.
0: heard it here first, folks. <laughs> well, perhaps um, not,
2: but you mentioned Ben. So, I, mm-hmm. so it's Ben and Mike Benzinger. Yes. And Mike was, pre- he's a pretty cool dude. He's mm-hmm. uh, he nice enough. I spent a little bit of time with him, um, because we had... We Were had, you one of the bachelorettes? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really, dude? You think I'm on bottom? No, no, not at all. All right, all right. Um, vying for the Bachelor? Position. No, not at all. But the bin guy, complete D-bag. Um, and their wine, which was involved, and I know yes. you're never supposed to talk shit about brands. It's not cool.
0: Uh apparently not in your portfolio huh (laughs) no no it it was it was once and you know it was fun if i ever start to like lean into that direction about a rum i don't care for i get the eyeball the side eye like (laughs) ixnay
2: walk away arthur walk away so you know Um, we
0: we we skipped our first question we totally did man yeah we did i'm not sure that anybody's gonna remember anyway um, well, so why don't we, why don't we kind of circle around with our first question and then our last question. And before we wrap up.
2: Yeah. So, uh, typically we always ask people to start, uh, what did you have to drink last night?
1: Um, two cocktails that I can't remember the, oh, should I be even like saying all this? No, uh, no, you're fine. Uh, two cocktails. Um, and then we I We were did, at Plat
0: 99 in Indianapolis.
1: Right. And then I did have a glass of Madeira of the yes, Circeo. Like, it, was was, she, it was a very small glass. It
0: was a very small
2: like, glass, but they came to clear the table, and they like grabbed the glass, and it was literally like <laughs> yeah. an eighth of an ounce, and she was like, uh-uh, wait a minute. There right. was I'm enough not
0: done.
1: to take a final sip. <laughs> I'm not going to waste my Madeira on Drops.
2: And I'm all for Madeira not conservation. Okay, Madeira, mind
0: Madeira <laughs> you. conservation.
2: I'm going to start a club, <laughs> that, that, Madeira conservation. I
0: will join. I, 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 we need to do that. Yeah, I had several cocktails there last night That's as well. That's a whole other podcast. Not surprisingly, Madeira, um yes I went the rum agricole route. Um, but even more so than just my usual taste preferences for agricole rum, uh, our bartender last night was Ryan Ehrlichman and, uh, from Indianapolis. In, yeah, uh, very talented. Uh, Plat 99. Mm-hmm. A talented young guy. Um, actually, he's not as young as I thought he was. He looks like a child, but he's like 33, 34. I thought he was like 22. That's why I was always really impressed with his talent. Like, wow, man, you're like young. You really grafted onto this. I hate uh, people that look younger than they are. But he's gonna hit. Uh, he's gonna be in Martinique in a couple of weeks, and hopefully mule me back some of the rare agricoles that we can't get here in the states. So I really wanted to chat with him last night, and I was happy to to join up with you folks and uh, and That's have fine. a few. What were you drinking last night?
2: I had a couple of glasses of white burgundy, but um, I wish I would have looked looked at or take more note of the vintage because it was a little bit acid deficient. It was it was okay for the price tag. I think it was it was a lofty wine by the glass. Um oh, we were in a hotel bar. F- yeah, very true. But still, even with those standards, it was more than I. It wasn't drinking as well as I would like it to have. But food was lovely and company was lovely. Oh, that was a blast! Um, I love that bar. And that was nice. Um the other question we always ask at the end of podcast (laughs) is what's your hangover cure? What's
1: my hangover
0: cure? You have none. You drink it in such moderation (laughs) that it's not even a concern. We have to have a hangover cure just to finish every episode. Uh, (laughs) Sherry's
2: glasses are both full. Ed and I's glasses are are multiple times empty. empty.
1: Yes. I also have to give a presentation here. Um Good point hangover cure usually we're slurring by this point in the my uh, podcast my goodness um a yep. lot of water and some Gatorade um electrolytes yeah and um usually some some like eggs and gluten-free toast
0: there we go That's now it's important to note that uh she cannot eat gluten uh, due to dietary yes. restrictions, and that's not right? like on a diet. She's no, not trying to not. lose weight, and you know. Well,
1: I should be, but. Uh- <laughs> Uh, I disagree Yeah, with that. Uh, uh, no. If I could eat real pizza, I I would. Right? Yeah, you know, I'd
0: be like, I want a gluten-free, gluten-free pizza. because oh, That's the no. best tasting pizza I can get.
1: Uh, only in Italy, as I said. Um, my next quest in life is to uh, I just love really Italy good the board. Gluten-free pizza.
2: Yeah, that's a great country. Absolutely. I could easily
0: spend the rest of my days just hanging out in Trastevere in Rome. Like it's just, I would never even leave the neighborhood. In fact, uh, my friends that live in Trastevere, I had one friend, uh, Stefania that when I saw her last when I was in Italy, um, I was like, hey, you want to meet us in Testaccio? We're going to go over and um, um, go to the Volpetti market and, and and buy some stuff and maybe sit and chill a little bit. And she's like, oh, yeah, I haven't been there in months. I should go. And I'm like, it's right across the river. Like, it's four blocks that way. It, she's like, yeah, but everything I need is here in Testaccio. I grew up
1: on Long Island, and I, I continued to live there when I moved back after college um, because I – I like having my garden in my space, and had mm-hmm. a lot of pets and everything, so didn't want to live in an apartment. And so I was I was in a house, um, but it was very difficult to get my friends who were living in the city to actually take the train out. And, uh, <laughs> right, to out. right. Yeah, I was too far.
0: So. Is there any way for our listeners here that are interested in kind of learning more about you and what you do? Uh, you have social Follow. media presence.
1: I do. I tweet occasionally. Um, less than Donald Trump or more
0: than Donald Trump?
1: <laughs> significantly. Less.
0: That can't be and That, that a, can't a, be, a, a, a be the bar. That's the benchmark, either. right?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I'm. I, I'm definitely. Sort Chardonnay of sad. Out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna start. Do, I can't believe has somebody not done that yet. Like that like one who that did actually, the shit my psalm says. Or they, have they not come out with Donald that, Trump's That actually
2: song? Would, would be really awesome. A number of presentations to, to kind song. of do uh, that. We
0: got it. We better jump do on that
1: now. He doesn't drink, so that's inexpensive the part of the Pinot
2: Noir. Bad dude hello <laughs> so, um oh, no. sherry it's, it's been great to have you here in indianapolis and, and working with the trade and the seminar i'm looking forward to it and this this has been a great podcast yeah um, this would
0: be a lot of fun to uh just continue on for the whole i mean i'd love to just record the whole damn seminar actually i might <laughs> you know <laughs> if we do you know we'll uh, we'll put it up on social media but um If you want to find us on social media, we are shiftdrinkpodcast.com. That's not social media. That's just our website. But you can stream all of our episodes through uh, shiftdrinkpodcast.com if you don't feel like bothering to uh, mess with uh, Google or iTunes or whatnot. But um, you can find us on Instagram at shiftdrinkpodcast. Uh, We do send a lot of stuff out on Instagram, and you'll get to see uh, some beautiful pictures of Sherry here Um, and less beautiful pictures of Camper from our last episode and uh, we've got uh, our Twitter account shift underscore drink, but we we don't tweet nearly as much. Um, but we do repost a lot of articles on our Facebook page. So do find us on Facebook um, at Shift Podcast as well, because we do um, put a lot of articles out there that are relevant to our interests, uh, primarily being uh, grower champagne, and rum. But um, you know, find us on there, and uh, you know, if you if you're on iTunes, uh, give you know, give us a rating. Yeah, we'd appreciate that, and it helps us to to get more uh clout, I guess, and it helps to show up in the front page of iTunes so um folks, this was awesome like thanks I, for having me yeah, this it was, was a lot of fun. I, I hope that you hit us up next time you're uh, you're in town and we can kind yeah. of ex- it, extend this conversation in a couple more hours and
1: That'd
0: be fun more clonal talk
1: I'll work on my hangover cures, yeah, right,
0: <laughs> well, we've got plenty. all you have to do is listen to all of our old <laughs> ones i mean we've gotten <laughs> there's some, some really interesting
2: people. hangover yeah. cures out there.
0: I'm I'm still stuck in sticking with my B vitamins, my uh, my what the hell? Oh, my uh, branch chain amino acids, and you know, <laughs> it works, man. I'm telling you, you can rehydrate yourself in an hour. You're done, and you're ready for rum again.
2: I'm just working on trying to drink less.
0: Oh, well, that too. But I think that's just a good product, luck <laughs> a product of our age, like. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much, Sherry. This Thanks was fun. Me. I am, There's so much to, so much knowledge to gain from you, um, and definitely um, check out the wine app that she's helped to develop, Wine Ring. Um, is there a website for that? Uh, there
1: is, and um, we actually just released a new version of the app in the App Store, so you can find it there. I think it's Wine Ring 3.0. Oh,
0: yeah, definitely check that yeah. out because there aren't a lot of wine apps out there that have masters like you behind it that are helping to develop that. So right. definitely please download. Check it out. It's going to improve your wine drinking. If all of this went right over your head, start at the bottom slowly. Keep working your way up. Before you know it, you'll uh, you'll be the next guest on our podcast. There you go. Just yeah. keep
2: drinking. And, um, you know, thanks to Rutherford Wine Company and um, Scott Family State Wines for, for bringing Sherry in our neighborhood and um, bringing us bottles of wine to, to drink.
0: Absolutely. Until next time, folks, uh, we will catch up with you. Our next guest will actually be Jay Schroeder. Uh uh X ex- Mezcal. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna be talking to Mezcal. We've been waiting for a long time to talk about it, so uh very excited about that. And uh so keep your keep your dial tuned. Is it? can you say that anymore? I mean everything's a podcast, there's no radio anymore. There's no dial. Just keep your space phone handy <laughs> <There> you <laughs> If you're if you're under fifty, you don't know what a dial is, so just like subscribe. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Cheers.
1: Cheers.